God didn't look at Abram and say, I'm a shield to you and I'm going to give you so much stuff. He said, I'm a shield to you and I am your reward. You're going to be with me. There's nothing better than that. There's nothing that can possibly fulfill you and protect you and love you the way that I can. Welcome to the Reach College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gatt. I don't know how many of you have ever bought a car from a car dealership, but it's not like a super fun experience. Um, I bought my truck like in like 2014, but when I went, it's it's like probably the most overly friendly experience you'll ever have in like the fakest possible way. So it's this weird combination, right? Because you walk in there and like I, I show up and I introduce myself to the guy and immediately somehow we're on a first name basis and we're like best friends and he wants to hear all about my life and make comments about how much he supports the troops and I don't know, all this stuff. And it's just like, it's awkward and it's clearly his effort, right, to build as much like trust and credibility with me as he possibly can as fast as he can, right? I also don't, I, it, one of the techniques they do that has happened to me multiple times when I've done this kind of thing is somehow the guy you talk to tries to pretend like he's the middleman helping you negotiate with his boss to get a better deal. And it's like, we all know that's not true, right? So he's like, he's like, you know, you could ask for this, you could ask for that, blah, blah. And then he says, oh, well, you know, I'll go see, you know, what I can get you. I'll go see if I can talk the boss down a little bit. I'll, you know, I'll try to help you get this deal. Get This is really, oh, that's what you want? I Okay, I'll see if I can make it happen, right? And then the, he goes away, right? And you know they're in the back room, like, eating donuts and sipping coffee for, like, five minutes while they pretend like he's in there negotiating on your behalf, Right. And then he comes back and he's like, okay, okay, I tried and I really, I pushed it. But here's what he's saying. Here's what his, you know, his offer as low as we can go. Right. It's like they never intended on going where you wanted to go with that anyway. Right. And it's this, it's this whole system where suddenly you're like in it with the salesman against the guy who owns the business. And it's like, I'm not, I know in my rational brain, that that salesman gets paid by the owner, right? Like they're on the same team, right? The whole time. But they, but they have to build that trust with me because I've never met these people. I've never met them at all. I automatically assume they're trying to cheat me. I automatically assume that they're trying to get the most money out of me that they can. So I'm not just, uh, I'm not just gonna believe them when I walk in and they're like, we promise we're gonna give you the best deal possible, right? So they have to come up with this elaborate system where they try to go from no background with me to some kind of credibility and trust that they can then leverage, right? They do this other thing that's I, has always annoyed me. It doesn't even make sense to me. They'll write the number that you want the car at on a piece of paper, and they'll say, they'll say, so you'll buy the car if we get it to that price. You'll bu- you'll you'll buy it, and it's like I don't know, maybe. <laughs> 
Like, how about you offer me that price and then we'll talk about it, you know? And so what they do is they're trying to get this like emotional leverage on you. And what they do is they'll say, well, if you'll sign on this piece of paper, this blank piece of paper that I've written a dollar amount on, then I'll take it to my boss. And I'm like, I'm not signing a blank piece of paper. I'm not signing anything until I'm actually buying the car, but I also am not signing this blank piece of paper, right? And again, he's pretending that like, that somehow he's helping you. He's got to take this to the boss. And the reality is he's trying to get you invested so that that way when he comes back and he actually does say maybe something near that price, he goes, but you said, you said you'd buy it. You signed, right? That's your signature right there, right? He's trying to commit me so that he can manipulate me, right? So this is not a real trusting, serious relationship. He's going to offer me a deal. He's going to try to make me commit. And all the while, in the back of my head, the question really is like, what is he getting? And what am I actually getting? Am I actually getting a deal? Like, am I actually, you know, they're going to tell you, no matter what, when you leave the car dealership, whatever you paid for that car, they're going to be like, man, you really, you got us. (laughs) You paid so little for that car. That's never true. That is never the case, right? They're going to make a profit no matter what. And that's the reality of what happens when you go buy a car. See, this is a totally different kind of trust relationship from the one that we have with God. Right? See, in God's case, he actually has long-term credibility. Not just in your own life, but he wrote down a, an entire book full of the times that he came through and provided and delivered people just so that even if you feel like in your own life you're starting from scratch— You can read this book and you can borrow from other times that God came through for other people in circumstances probably way bigger than things you have faced. I mean, I've never walked across on dry land as a river stood up on both sides beside me. That's insane, right? But I can read that story and I can be like, I'm pretty sure God can pay this bill. I think he can handle it, right? And so God has given us this long-running credibility for who he is And the Bible tells us that God doesn't lie, that he won't, that that's not something in his nature. It will never happen. So when God tells me that he's trustworthy, that he's credible, when he proves it, I know that it will never stop being the case. God wants what's best for me, even though it ends up costing him. Right? See, I don't walk into the car dealership and the car salesman's like, you know what? I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm just going to, I'm going to buy you a car. Like that doesn't happen, right? But see, in God's case, God is the one putting everything on the line for us. He's the one that is giving his son. Jesus is the one that's shedding his blood, right? So there is automatically not the same cost on our end. We're the ones benefiting from this deal. And all the while, God never asked me to earn this not even to pay it back. God merely asked me to trust that he has done it, that he's accomplishing it. So we're in a series in the book of Genesis. It's called The March of Redemption. And what we're seeing is the very beginning of God's credibility in human history. Starts right with the creation story, and there's this uh, God's immediate credibility in that he created all things, was in control of all things, ordered all things, and he did it specifically because he was preparing a place for 
us. And then there's God's credibility of provision even when we rebel. And then there's God's credibility as He moves His promise to redeem us one generation at a time, never missing, never failing, never letting it be snuffed out, even though the situations that mankind is producing continually get worse and worse and worse. They continue to try to stop what God is doing, and God never fails. That's why we're calling it the March of Redemption. And we finally made it to Abram. Abram leaves his family, his country. He leaves everything behind to follow God. And now we've seen God taking care of him at every step. This is the last week of Genesis for a while. We're going to do chapter 15 today. And then we're going to start a series in 1 Corinthians called Church Fails. And we're going to come back to Genesis later. But... This last week when we're in Genesis today, we're going to talk about one of the most climactic moments, not just in Genesis, not just in Abraham's life, but in the whole Bible. We're going to see a verse that is quoted over and over and over again in the New Testament. The moment when it says Abraham believed God, when he trusted in him. Are you struggling to trust God with an issue? Whenever you are struggling to trust God and to understand what God wants for you and wants you to do, the first thing you need to do is you need to remember who God is. You need to orient yourself on God, not on your problem, not on your ability to solve your problem or inability to solve your problem. You need to orient on who God is and what He's done for you. You need to remember God. Look at Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir to my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Abram also said, Since you have given me no son, one who has been born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come, down, will come from your own body shall be your heir. And he, took, and he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. So the first thing I want you to see is this phrase, The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Abram. This is the first time that we're going to see what is a classic prophetic formula. So a prophetic formula is a phrase that the author's using to tell you that what's happening in this passage is prophecy in a future predictive sense. God is telling Abraham things in this chapter that are going to come true for sure because they are from the mouth of God. And everything God says, because he cannot lie, because he will not lie, comes true. So in this moment, Abram is fulfilling the role of prophet. He is having a vision where he is going to see the things that God is going to do. But what's interesting is what follows the prophetic formula is what's called a poetic tricolon. Okay, now this is important because it affects the way we read that next portion where it says, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. That phrase is a poetic tricolon, which means every part of it is interconnected and shapes the meaning of every other part of it. 
They're not three disjointed statements. So the first thing we see is, why do we not fear? Because the Lord is a shield to us, right? Those are related statements. It's not, don't fear, and also, I'm a shield to you. It's that we don't fear because the Lord is a shield to us. What is happening there? Immediately, God is saying, focus on what I am, who I am, what the work I've done for you. That is why you shouldn't fear. The next thing we say we see is that the language, I actually am dissatisfied after studying this passage with the way the NASB uh, translates this portion. The NASB says, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. But the actual uh Hebrew language syntax there, it should sound more like this. I am a shield to you. I am your reward, which is very great. Right? See, God is saying, I am the great reward. Right? I, you, you, need, you need to not miss this. At no point in this chapter, we're going to see it several times. At no point in this chapter are God and, Moses, or God and Abram talking about temporal things only. They're talking about some temporal things, but the things they're talking about that are temporary are designed to show us eternity because what they're doing is they're having a conversation about eternity. See, God didn't look at Abram and say, I'm a shield to you and I'm going to give you so much stuff. He said, I'm a shield to you and I am your reward. You're going to be with me. There's nothing better than that. There's nothing that can possibly fulfill you and protect you and love you the way that I can. I am your great reward. God is the point. See, this phrase, this poetic tricolon, it could be said to all Christians throughout all of human history. Do not be afraid because the Lord is your shield. He is your reward. That's a message to all of us. So then Abram, he asked God, how are you going to deliver on this eternal promise because I have no son? What Abram is acknowledging is he's saying, I can't see the plan because you've told me that you're going to create this nation, this this land that you're going to give me. You're going to give me this inheritance that's eternal. And yet I don't have the most basic temporal thing I need, an actual son, to let to make this happen. How often in your life do you feel like God is prompting you towards something and you can't even see the first step? That's why it's called the faith walk. Right? The whole point is that you don't you don't get something from God and go, "Well, I got to wait until God begins to unfold that to then believe him." You believe him because he said it's going to happen, and then how that's going to happen will blow your mind. See, Abram is asking God, how can I see it? I want you to see that he took his doubt to God. See, God promised him something that he didn't have yet. And instead of just being mad at God or doubting God in in a sinful way, he went to God and said, God, I don't understand. I've told you guys this before. God does not respond poorly to weakness. He responds badly to rebellion. There's examples of the difference here. There's moments like Gideon showing his weakness that God responds to, condescends to, answers. There's moments 
Moses is one of my favorites because Moses at the burning bush and the first half of the conversation is weakness and God answers him every step of the way in patience. And then the last statement is just rebellion. Well, God, I just don't want to do it. And then it says the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. See, God is patient with us because here's the deal. I don't think we even grasp how weak we are before God. We're not capable of anything. He's very patient with the reality that we can't handle any of this without him. He takes his doubt to God. Even the name of God that he uses here is interesting because the name that he uses actually means sovereign God. So he takes his, he takes his doubt to God while acknowledging who God is. He says, God, I don't get it, but I know that you are in total control. I know that you can do it. I just don't see it yet. So even in his doubt, he's acknowledging God's ability to overcome the obstacle that he doesn't understand, the way that he is too weak to see what's happening. And what does God point to to reassure Abram? He takes him outside and he points him at the stars. See, God is pointing to his ability to do the impossible. He says, look at the stars. You can't even count how grand, how amazing my creation is. You could never even dream of replicating this. If I can put the stars in place, can't I handle this problem? Now, I want you to see something. I've told you guys this before, but we do this weird mental backflip when we think about our salvation because we've grown up in the Bible Belt where we go, well, salvation, yeah, of course God's got that. And then we look at our temporal immediate problems and we're like, but how's he going to help me pay this bill? I don't know how I'm going to get that money. And it's like, no, no, no. The most impossible thing God could ever do is somehow reconcile you to himself. That's actually impossible, and he did it. So if that's impossible and he did it, of course he can do all the small stuff. It doesn't even make sense that we would think that this is the, is the part that should worry us. If God took care of that, and what he does with Abram is he takes him outside and he says, look at what I've done. You don't think I can handle the fact that you don't have a son yet? You don't see how the plan is going to unfold? When you are struggling with a trial with some doubt in your life, remind yourself of who God is and what he's done already in your life. And if you don't think God has done anything in your life, well, first of all, come talk to me. But second of all, just open this up and see what God has done for you, by the way. You may not have recognized this, but this whole story was also so that you could come to know him. So he's already done this for you. Let God remind you of who he is and then walk in obedience. I want to talk to you guys about the difference between justification and sanctification for a moment. This is uh, the, the avenue that we receive justification is through faith, right? That We know that that's the conduit for our justification. But justification and sanctification are not what faith is, right? And these are... Uh, I think Christianese words, I mean, they're very common concepts in Scripture, but we get too comfortable with them. We don't realize that not everybody just immediately knows what these words mean. Um, so, justification. Justification is the objective truth that you've been made right with God. Objective truth. That means that it doesn't change based on any opinion or perspective, it is or it isn't true that you've been made right with God. And if it is true that you've been made right with God, 
That is your justification. This is your positional reality to God. See, the reality is you were once in opposition to God, and when he justified you, he made you positionally right with him. He put you together with him. That's what justification is. Sanctification is the subjective experience of that justification throughout your entire life that lets you see it as true. See, every time that you bear fruit, that you endure in a trial, that you grow closer to the Lord, every time that you understand the gospel better, you're being sanctified. And every time that you are being sanctified, you are experiencing in real time, in, in a real way, your justification over again. See, because the only thing that actually changes you to be more like Christ is that God is making you right with him. So he made you right with him one time at the beginning, positionally forever. That cannot change. And then every time he does that in an experiential way, you become more and more like him until someday in heaven, the truth that you were positionally made right with God is perfected and you will always live in that way. See, because what happens right now, you experience it in your sanctification but you also have your flesh. And every now and again, your flesh trips you up and you fall flat on your face and you don't feel very justified in that moment. You don't feel very right with God. Now, here's the thing. Your sin doesn't change your positional truth that you are right with God, but it makes you feel like you aren't. And that's why sanctification is having that experience of God making you right with Him your entire life so that you grow closer and closer and more like Him every step of the way. That's what sanctification is. Look at verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Okay, I want you to see something. First of all, Abram believed. This is not a merit-based act. This is not something that, this is not an action. It is trust-based. It is dependence-based. This is saying that Abram put his hope in God. He saw that God was saying, look at everything I can do and believe that I can do this and more for you. This is also not a trade. Abram trusted God and God gave Abram righteousness. But Abram was trusting that God would give him righteousness. He wasn't giving him faith so that he could get righteousness. It's not a transaction. If faith isn't an action, it's also not something that you can give to God. It's something you have in what God is doing. It says that he was credited his righteousness. See, faith doesn't save you. If faith saved you, you wouldn't need righteousness. It would say Abraham believed God, period. That would be it because that would be enough. What it says is that Abraham believed God and God made him right with himself. He justified him. He sanctified him. He made him positionally right. And that, that making right is what saves us. That righteousness that God then gives to us, it's his own. Grace is that you didn't earn it, you don't deserve it, and yet God gives it to you. Grace is God giving you his own righteousness as a credit, as a down payment, right? Because there's this doctrine in the Bible called the already not yet, okay? 
you are already saved if you're a Christian, but you haven't yet actually been perfected and seen your salvation because that happens on the last day. So it's credited to all of us to be righteous. God counts it as though we are righteous, even though our righteousness is seen perfected on the last day, right? Because until then, we still have our flesh and it's still warring against us. Righteousness is what saved. Grace is that God gives you his righteousness because you don't have any righteousness of your own. You don't have that to bring to God. Grace is given to those who trust in God to do what he said he will do. And what he said he will do is that he will give you his righteousness. If this doesn't make a lot of sense to you because it's pretty difficult to explain, I'm going to read two verses in Romans, and I want you to listen to these verses as they, because the Word of God is more powerful than my ability to speak, we're going to let Scripture explain Scripture. So this is Romans 4.3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then, I'm sorry, and then uh, 5... 17, 517 says, For if by the offense of the one death reigned through the one, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. See, Romans, if you were here for the Roman series, if you weren't, I, I suggest that you go back and read the Roman series. But if you weren't here for the Roman series, Romans is basically Paul just taking this idea of faith and just unpacking it for eight chapters, faith and grace and righteousness. Um, it, it's first, it's, I got confused. It's first two that I actually want to read to you guys. So four, two. For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Right. So what we're seeing is that Abram isn't committing an act. He's not earning something before God. He is merely putting his trust in what God has done. And what God has done is to offer righteousness to all mankind, to redeem us by his own blood. That is what's happening here. Now, there's some trouble at this point. And some of you, I think, may have already caught on to this. But the trouble at this point is I've been using language that makes it seem like this is the moment. This is the moment when Abram gets saved. That's, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like we've been leading up to this moment where Abram puts his faith in God and God justifies him. Now, I struggle with that this week to truly, tr truly try to understand what's happening here. And it turns out that scholarship all the way back to Luther has been uh, asking that same question, right? Is this the moment? And the thing that I can't get away from is that there's no way that this being the moment that Abram finally puts his faith in the Lord uh, doesn't distort all the things we've seen Abram do so far, right? Abram clearly has a relationship with the Lord. He's clearly walking in faith. He's clearly being uh, safeguarded by God. And so if this is really the first moment that he has faith, it, it throws some kind of weird ambiguity over, the, over what we've seen so far. So I don't actually think that that's what's happening here. However, the passage is clearly built around verse 6. See, 7 through 21 
are designed to connect as after verse 6 intentionally. The author is saying verse 6 happened and then 7 through 21 happened, right? It's a result of verse 6. So how do we reconcile this? I actually do not like the way that the, the NSB translate this, this verse either. It says then. The word uh, at the beginning of verse 6 for me is then. Some of you it's and, right? Both of these are implied, but they're actually not present in the verse. See, the Hebrew word here for believe, it implies, it's structured intentionally to imply a past action with an ongoing effect. So it's almost like the author is saying right here in this passage, in this story, we're going to talk about something that has already occurred and is having an ongoing effect at this moment. It's still happening. So Abram, at some point, has believed, right? And the rest of Scripture testifies that the moment that he believed was when he followed God away from his family and out of his country. So if that is when it happened, then how are we supposed to view this moment? I read multiple viewpoints, and here is what I have determined to be what's happening here. The author wants you to see justification occurring in this passage. He wants you to understand the relationship of you to God in a justification sense, but Abram is experiencing a moment of sanctification. He is experiencing his justification in real time. He is growing in his faith and his belief. He is growing in his strength. He is being brought closer to God, but the tie-in for us is to see what justification does to us in relationship to God. Here's the key here. What is the difference between justification and sanctification in the experience of your life? The only difference is that justification happened first. That's what it is. It's the first time that sanctification happened. You can almost see justification in a way as a subset of sanctification, because sanctification is you being made Christ-like. Well, justification is the first time ever that you were made Christ-like, and you were made Christ-like in a permanent and positional way, and then you were made Christ-like more and more and more and more, and that's what sanctification is. So when you experience sanctification, it feels, this is why a lot of times baby Christians who got saved especially those of us who got saved in the church at young ages, will get to a place where they think they are, they are just now getting saved. And it's because they might have gone through a period where they did not feel sanctification. They did not experience that because we get apathetic about it growing up in the church. And so then the first time that they feel sanctification, they begin to follow God in a real way, they go, well, that feels like I'm getting saved. And it should. That's the point. And hopefully, you have that experience over and over and over your whole life. That doesn't mean you're getting re-saved every time it happens. That means you're growing closer to the Lord. You're getting sanctified. You should always be seeking the experience of understanding the salvation God has given you for your whole life. You should constantly be looking for, God, show me the gospel. Show me what this is. Show me how to be more Christ-like. Sanctification is the experience of justification over and over again. 
Justification is what's in view in this passage. Sanctification is how Abram is experiencing it himself. That is why we're given the verb believe in a way that implies and shows us this is not the first moment for Abram. But the author wants you to see that what's happening in Abram's life for you, for us, this is how it works. This is how justification happens. When you grow in your understanding of the gospel, you worship God. And when you worship God, you believe and you become more Christ-like. That is the whole point of the Christian life. If you haven't been floored by the gospel recently, you should be asking God on a daily basis to show you, to show you what He did for you, to make it real in a way that brings you to your knees, that teaches you who He is and how much He loves you. Look at verse 7. And He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, Lord God, how may I how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two and laid each half the, uh, opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. And birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Okay, Abram, I want you to understand again, is not asking for temporal, temporary rewards. He is asking God to show him in temporal ways that he can know that his eternity is taken care of. Lord, how do I see my eternity? It's the same question as, how do I see my justification? By temporary sanctification, temporary righteousness, by seeing in my life that I'm producing fruit, that's how I know that I've been justified. See, Abram is saying, Lord, in my life, show me that you are going to do the things you promised me to do eternally and show me them by something that you can do right now, by something that you can show me right here. See, even in this, in this portion, the land is referenced again. And we've talked about the land over and over and over again. The land, and this is what the Israelites missed themselves, was that the land wasn't about the physical land of the promised land. Now, there was a fulfillment of them getting that land. But the point of the land that God prepared for us, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, is a place where we could be with Him. Where we could live in an unhindered connection with who He is. See, the prophetic formula is very important in this passage because the current audience reading this in the wilderness of the book of Numbers is being told, God promised prophetically to your forefather that he was going to bring you into this land. That prophetic formula is telling them it's as good as done. God let Abram see it in a vision and, and have it predicted that this would occur. So God tells Abram to set up a covenant ritual. 
So he takes these animals and he cuts them and he, he separates them on two sides, right? And, and this is an old ritual, a, a old ceremony for a covenant. What would have happened is that both parties in the covenant would have walked between these animals, making a promise. And part of the implication of the promise is, if I fall through on the promise, may what happened to these animals happen to me, right? So this was an ancient ritual. Now, why is God choosing to use this ancient ritual to make a promise to Abram? Because God speaks to us in terms we can understand, right? This is not some sacred ceremony ordained by God that was created in heaven. God is taking a cultural thing that Abram would have recognized to make a solemn promise to him, right? He's saying, uh, set up one of your one of your ceremonies to make a covenant and make a promise and let me promise you something in a way that you can see it. And then in verse 12, it says, terror and darkness came. And again, these are references for the current audience. See, because when Israel left uh, Egypt in the Exodus, they went to Mount Sinai. And when they got to Mount Sinai, God showed up at the mountain and darkness and terror came with him. Why? Why is God in the Old Testament, why does he come across so terrifying, so dark and ominous? Why? Because you can't be in his presence in your current state. It will obliterate you. The reason that God is awe and terror in the Old Testament is because if you approach him as you are, you will cease to be. God is presenting His full glory, His full honor. I think that someday it will be just as terrifying in heaven, but it will cause us to worship Him because we will be made clean perfectly. We can be in the presence of that awe and that terror. Whereas now, God told them if they so much as touched the, the foot of the mountain, they would die because they would be too close to God. And in this moment, the current audience is reading this, and when they hear, you can, you can picture it like, like a, a moment in a movie that the darkness sets in and the audience goes, God's here. They immediately know. They know from the, that description that God has arrived. He's come in person to be near Abram. And Abram is feeling the terror of being in the Lord's presence in his current state. He's only able to be this much in the Lord's presence because he has had righteous credited to him. Right? That's the same for you. The reason that you can go to the Lord in prayer is because you have been credited righteousness because you have put your faith in the blood of the cross. See, someday Jesus would come in person and for the first time as a human, he would be God in an approachable way. Somebody that would welcome us with open arms, who we could come to, who could bring our burdens to, who we could touch and feel. See, Jesus wasn't terrifying, or at least not the first time he came. See, someday Jesus, the welcoming version, the, the, the God that we could approach and hug, that we will be able to approach and hug someday, someday he's going to come back and he's going to bring with him that same terror but that terror is only going to be experienced by those who haven't been credited righteousness. He will come back and everyone 
who had an opportunity in, our, in all of our existence to experiencing him, to experience him in that welcoming way, will experiencing him, will experience him in this way, with darkness and terror. Receive your justification, and then realize that God is saving you every single day. Now, if you're someone like me and you grew up in church, this next portion I, I want to point out something to you. As we read this next portion of passage in chapter 15, there is a temptation for those of us who have grown up in church to fill in all the gaps and feel like God laid out every single thing that is going to happen for Abram's descendants, right? He's going to say things like, well, they're going to be oppressed by a foreign nation and someday I'll judge that nation and they will they will take away, they'll plunder that nation. He's going to say things like this and well, if you if you grew up in church and you've read the stories, you're like, oh, he's talking about Egypt and them being in slavery and the Exodus, and they're going to plunder Egypt when they come out. But here's the thing. Abram's not getting all those details because he hasn't read Exodus, right? So it's not fair to look at what Abram's told here and be like, he told him, every, why didn't God tell me everything like that, right? He still tells him something. He gives him a prediction of the future, especially a prediction that the current audience, again, wandering around in numbers, they see that prediction. They go, all that did come true. All that did come true. God has credibility. So that means they are realizing in that moment that that means God can bring us into the land. We can conquer because God did everything that he told Abram he was going to do. But Abram is not experiencing that amount of clarity. Look at verse 13. Then, I'm sorry. <laughs> then God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the wrongdoing of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now, I know that I just told you that Abraham doesn't get all of the details, but he does get quite a bit of the future here. It's tempting to look at this and go, man, I wish God would tell me that much about my future. Right? Like, like how often, like, what is our main struggle? Just not knowing what's coming next. Like, I, would, I just wish God would, would tell me more than half step at a time. Or even tell me the next half step, because sometimes I don't even have that. I feel like I'm walking in the dark. Right? I wish God would tell me my future, but I want to point out to you something here. Everything Abram just got told happens after he dies. So here's the thing. God has actually told you your future to that extent. He's told you what's going to happen after you die. He's already told you the promises that you have in eternity. You have the same amount of your future predicted as Abram just got. And you can walk in that faith that God is going to fulfill your future after you pass in the same way that Abram did. And Abram took comfort in this because he understood that it doesn't really matter what happens for the next 20, 30, 80 years that I'm here. What matters is what happens the day after I'm not here. That's when I need God to come through. Abram understood that he could walk in faith because God was telling him, I'm going to do the impossible. I'm going to solve the problem you can't solve, which is what happens the day after you die. 
Look at verse 17. Now it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, a smoking oven and a flaming torch appeared, which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, uh, the river Euphrates, and the land of the Kenite, and the land of, Ke- of the Kenizzite, and the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the, Ref- the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. See, the darkness settles. It's the middle of the night now. And God shows up in what is described as a furnace and a torch. Now, I looked all over for an explanation of this, and I only found one that was even remotely compelling. I'll tell you this. I'm not real sure why this is the way God chose to manifest himself in this moment. Um, Here's the best opinion that I saw. I think that this is God, again, being represented in in, in a literary way, to the current audience as something they were familiar with. Fire and smoke. See, the pillar of fire and smoke is what has been leading Israel through the promised land, or I'm sorry, through the the wilderness for a whole generation at this point. And see, what's happening is that God regularly manifests in fire and smoke in the Old Testament as a way of being consistent, as a way of being something that will grab his people's attention and allow him to lead them. The smoke, see, the smoke can shroud God so that we don't come into direct contact with something that would obliterate us. And the fire is a bright light that even in the darkness can lead us, right? So I think that what's happening is that Abram is seeing God in a form that he will take more and more with his people in the Old Testament to lead them as fire and smoke, right? And in this moment, as God appears as fire and smoke, he walks through the the animals, through the covenant, alone. This should not be missed. Abram doesn't walk through it with him. They are not making a two-way covenant with each other. God is making a one-sided promise to Abram to do everything he said he will do. This is not an obligation. This is not God saying, well, you, you do your part, I'll do my part. We'll meet in the middle. This is God saying, I'm going to carry what I have said will happen all the way through to completion. And I'm letting you see me make that promise so that you know I will do it. And there's nothing about Abram that makes God compelled to do what he said he'll do. See, here's the thing. In your life, whether you like it or not, you think that you're on a performance-based relationship with God. Chances are you have somebody in your life you are on a performance-based relationship with, and what you're what you're doing with God is that you think, well, I'm I'm not messing up and I'm having my quiet time, everything's going well, and I show up to church and I serve in church and I tithe, so God's blessing me. And then you have a off day and and you stub your toe and you're like, God hates me again. That's it. I'm out, I'm out of the will. Right? That's not how this works. God has made a one-sided covenant to save His people. It's on His terms. I want you to notice that righteousness has been given to Abram before this covenant is made. See, God has already made Abram right with Him 
before he shows him that he has promised to do it. Right? Now, he said over and over again, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. But in this moment, he's putting a stamp on it, a seal. But that moment came after it had already occurred. See, because if, if it goes the other way, and this is why the author wants you to see this moment as justification, because if it goes the other way, then there's room for you to say, well, I have to fulfill this covenant bond. I have to do my part, and then, uh, and then I can believe and get righteousness. I can earn it after I make this covenant with God. But that's not what's happening. See, what's happening is that Abram was credited righteousness, and then God promised him that he would fulfill that, that that credit wouldn't go delinquent, that he would pay his self-debt to Abram to make him right in heaven. See, we know later that the, that the, the Jews in the Old Testament and the New Testament are going to get hung up on circumcision. And, and circumcision is really a, a proxy for the whole law, right? They're going to think, well, we earn, the law is what gets us to God. We're, we earn our righteousness. we got to do these things. Well, here's the thing. The law is always an outward expression of inward faith. The, the whole law can be summed up in love God and love others. And we do those things because we're expressing the reality of what has happened inside of us, right? And, and the beautiful thing about the law is that it's actually designed to show you how much credit you need. God has to give you a down payment, a credit of righteousness, because you can't fulfill the law enough to get there. You'll never accomplish it. So after God gives you the down payment of righteousness, then you express what he's done for you by living and loving him and loving others. But you're not earning something. You're not paying back something. That's not what's happening. The covenant promised land, uh, the boundaries given there match the boundaries we see for Eden. See, that has never changed. Because again, we're not talking about a physical land. We're talking about an eternal promise. And the reason I want you to see is because the reason that people get confused is because a lot of this comes true in a temporal way. Why? Because God lets us see what he's going to do in eternity by letting us see it fulfilled in, in the temporary world we live in. So all of this is going to have a fulfillment in the Old Testament, but that's never the point. The point is everything, every way that that's fulfilled on earth in this life is just pointing to how God's going to fulfill it in eternity, in a perfect way. That's what's happening. We're given a list of ten nations here because the number ten is the number for completeness. So this, this list of ten nations is saying God will give them a complete victory over the land. They will conquer. They will take the entire land. All this prophecy comes true in a temporal way to point to eternal truths. God uses temporal means to demonstrate his eternal love. He'll do that your entire life. You just have to look around and realize what God is doing for you. This is Hebrews chapter 10. <coughs> Verse 35 and 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. 
For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. See, the great reward is God. He gives you a down payment on Himself in this life. You walk in that down payment, and someday you receive it in full, in perfection in heaven. It's easy to say we believe and then ignore what believing actually looks like. What walking in that belief actually looks like. My question for you is, are you focused on heaven or are you letting the things that God is doing in your life that are supposed to testify to Him taking care of you in heaven distract you from heaven? Right? I've used this analogy so many times and you guys have heard it, but if, some, if somebody in your family loves you very much, they give you a watch and, and they give you this nice gift and you take the gift, the gift is a representation of their love. You don't take the gift and go, great, I always knew I just needed you until I could get this watch. Like that doesn't make sense. And yet God is trying to represent in your life in temporal ways how much he loves you eternally. And so often we hone in on that temporal thing and we go, oh good, I don't need God because I finally got what I wanted. That's not the point. The temporal things should lead you to a place of worship for the fact that God loves you. That is the point. And all you have to do is believe. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.